0: We are in Galatians chapter 2. We've been in a series here. This is the third week of a series through Galatians called Free. And uh, if you're new with us, great time to jump in as uh, we're still really kind of getting into the meat of what this book is going to be about. And today, uh, we're going to talk about living in rhythm with the gospel. Now, I do not have rhythm. Um, I have to sometimes actually watch the drummer to figure out if I want to clap or anything like that just to make sure that I know where the beat is. So I can watch Chris or whoever up here playing the drums and I can figure out, okay, that's where I'm supposed to, because I get off beat very easily because I don't have good rhythm. In fact, my rhythm's so bad, I remember in high school there was a guy, when we played basketball, he would tell me, man, your jump shot doesn't have any rhythm. And I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but if I have so little rhythm that it even applies to basketball, uh, that's pretty bad, right? And so Christianity is meant to be lived in rhythm with or in sync with, in step with, or you might say in line with, the gospel and its truth. Uh, when we get out of rhythm or out of sync or out of step with the gospel, it begins to cause many problems spiritually, both in our lives and in lives of others, in the church and even if affects the how we, how we minister to and reflect Christ to the unchurched. And in fact, the Apostle Paul implies here in Galatians that our conduct, our thoughts... Our attitudes and our pursuits and goals should be in sync with the truth of the gospel because the gospel is supposed to be what's shaping every area of our life. There's no area of our life that the the gospel shouldn't impact. You might say that the gospel should cast a wide shadow over our life and that there's no place that shouldn't be covered under that shade um, of the gospel. And Sometimes, though, even for the most devoted follower of Christ who loves Jesus, who's trying to live according to his word, uh, we can get out of sync with the gospel. Right? And so for any of us, as we'll see this morning, and if you're not a Christ follower, if you're here this morning, you say, well, I'm not really a Christian, what's this got to do with me? Uh, you were created, you were designed, we believe the Bible teaches, actually to live in rhythm with the gospel, and your life will never be feel quite right. There will always be sort of something missing from your life, and our lives are riddled with brokenness and guilt and shame until we get in line with the gospel of Christ and in Galatians 2 verses 11 through 21 we get a picture of what it looks like when someone gets out of rhythm with, with the gospel so we're going to get this picture in Galatians 2 of someone getting out of this out of line out of step with out of rhythm with the gospel getting off the beat and then we're going to get what what I believe Paul's sharing with us what How to be in rhythm with the gospel and what that looks like from the life of Paul and from his teaching here in Galatians chapter 2. So we're going to pick up in Galatians chapter 2 starting in verse 11. And I'm going to just kind of read chunk by chunk this morning. We're going to work our way through it. So let's read verses 11 through 14 together. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. What an opening line here this morning, right? Verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, and there's our key phrase, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So we're going to pause there because we need to park here and kind of figure out what's going on. First of all, I want you to understand Cephas is the apostle Peter. Now you've got to remember, if you go back to last week, what we saw is Paul is recounting him when he became an apostle and when he first connected with the other apostles and how they accepted him and how they're all preaching the same gospel. And, and we left last week on this picture of unity between Paul and and the other apostles kind of showing us that they're all preaching the same gospel, that you're only saved by grace through faith in Jesus and that alone. And then the very next verse, Paul goes, after saying that with Peter and James and the others, how he had this big unified moment of handshaking and fellowship, the very next verse is, now that, let me tell you about a time I rebuked Peter to his face. I rebuked Cephas to his face. And it's like, whoa. Now, Now think about this. Peter was with Jesus from the beginning. Peter was the most visible and likely most vocal of the disciples. You might say he was the early leader, okay, in the clubhouse uh, of of the guys that were kind of leading the church. Peter was the guy that on Pentecost stood up and preached to the crowd that had gathered and the Lord used him to communicate the gospel that day and God saved 3,000 people, okay? And now here comes this guy who during that time was trying to have Christians murdered and locked in prison. And he goes up to Peter, the most vocal, visible stalwart of the apostles, one of the pillars, and rebukes him to his face in front of the whole church. This is filled with awkwardness, all right? <laughs> Awkward. It could have got ugly real quick. Uh, Paul doesn't tell us. As far as we know, it didn't get ugly, okay? It's, it seems like it went well. We don't get really a lot of information beyond what you saw there. But. So the first thing I want to talk about this morning is what it looks like to be out of rhythm with the gospel. And you'll notice here from the example Paul gives us is that it can happen to anyone. Listen, if the apostle Peter's conduct, if his behavior can get out of line, out of rhythm, out of step with the gospel, then my conduct can get out of line with the gospel, and your conduct can get out of line with the gospel, then our attitudes can get out uh, uh, out of rhythm with the gospel. If it can happen to Peter, Trust me, it can happen to you and I. And what Paul is saying here is that for Peter and those he helped lead astray, their conduct was not in step with the gospel. And what that means is their behavior was betraying their theology. The way they were living wasn't lined up with what they said they believed. It was out of sync. It was out of rhythm. It was off beat. So what they did didn't line up with what they believed. Now, here's the story of what happened. While Paul was ministering in Antioch, excuse me, while Peter was ministering in Antioch, he would eat with Gentiles, okay? Now this was, that in and of itself was revolutionary. And we learned about that when we went through the book of Acts, how the apostle Peter had this vision one day on a rooftop where God taught him that he could eat food that he once thought was unclean because those dietary laws and stuff passed away with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And what he was teaching him through that is that all people are clean as well. That there's no one that Peter could look at and say, I'm better than you because I'm Jewish. There's no one that he could look at and say that you're too far gone for God to be able to bring you into his family. And then the immediate application of that for Peter was he went to a man named Cornelius's house, and God used him to lead Cornelius and his family to Christ, and this Gentile family comes to faith. And so we have this picture of Peter who was very much in sync with the truth of the gospel, which is this, Jesus died for all, and all those who come to him in faith can be saved, Jew or Gentile. Now, In their day, it was revolutionary for Jews to eat with Gentiles because really strict Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles because it was their way of trying to obey Old Testament law about staying clean. It was all about being clean or unclean. And the Old Testament law never said you couldn't eat with a Gentile, but what it did say was there are certain foods you can't eat, and you couldn't eat food sacrificed to idols. idols. And just like we are, we tend to want to create rules to help us uh, treat the real rules Right with respect. So to keep the real rules that God's given us, we'll create other rules to try to help us keep those rules, and those are our rules, though. All right. And when we take those rules and enforce them on everybody, that's called legalism. That's adding to what God has said. That's just our personal rules that we're forcing on other people. And so this is kind of what had begun to happen. People started going, well, in order to make sure I don't eat food sacrificed to idols, in order to make sure I don't touch anything unclean, we just won't be around Gentiles, much less eat with them, because eating in their context represented being welcome, all right? That's why it was such a stink when Jesus comes on the scene and he's eating with sinners. He's eating with people that everybody else considered outcasts. And Jesus comes on the scene and he's having a party with them and he's eating with them. And they said, oh, he's a drunk and he's a glutton. Not because he drank too much and not because he ate too much because they didn't like the fact of who he was eating with. Because what Jesus was communicating and saying that I am the Messiah and I eat with these people is that anyone can come into the kingdom of God if they come through me. And The gospel just carries that over and Peter's carrying that over as he eats with Gentiles. Now, so what he was doing was a good thing, but it was a thing that would bother some Jews. And that even early Jewish Christians struggled with. And it was a whole big deal in the early church when you get around Acts chapter 15. There was a whole big meeting over this. But then some people came, it says, from James, which means they came from Jerusalem. Now, commentators differ over whether these people were actually sent by James or they claimed to be from James. But either way, because of this pressure of this new group of Jews being there... Peter starts thinking, they might not like the fact that I eat with these Gentiles. And so he stops eating with them, okay? It's rooted in sort of a nationalism, sort of a nationalistic racial pride. And it was really kind of communicating that we're better than you are. And so he starts pulling away. And some believe that it was actually because back in Jerusalem, there was some kind of a A fervency of nationalism that was overtaken with some really passionate Jewish folks who would give the church some trouble if they heard Jewish Christians now were going and beginning to eat with Gentiles. So there's all kinds of stuff at work here. And what happens is Peter gets afraid. That's what it says, out of fear. He gets afraid, and he decides, "Well, I'll pull back, and I'll just eat with the Jewish believers, and I won't eat with the Gentiles believers." Well, the other Jewish Christians go, "Well, if Peter's doing it. Then they must. Have. I mean, this is a, this guy hung out with Jesus. He's the guy that preached the Pentecost sermon. This guy was one of Jesus's closest friends. He was one of the three that was the. Cl-. They go over with him, and even Barnabas, who walked in sync with Paul throughout most of his ministries, even he, he says, is led astray. And what's happening here is it's a, really a show of hypocrisy. Because they're acting like they are not willing to eat with Gentiles when in fact they, they are willing to do it just until these people came around. In fact, Peter knows that there's nothing wrong with this. He's just doing it to please these other people. But in doing so, he's offending the Gentiles. He, he, he's, he's really, with his conduct, preaching stuff that's not true about the gospel. Here, here's some ways their conduct were at, was out at of step with the gospel. It was rooted in fear. It says it was rooted in fear. And there's no place for fear in the gospel. The gospel frees us. From fear of man. Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill your body, but fear him who can kill your body and cast your soul in the hell. Those are strong words. Jesus' way of saying, don't fear man, fear God. And the gospel frees us from the fear of man because the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if God is not condemning me, why do I care if a person does? So the gospel frees us from that. It was also a show of hypocrisy. It says they were being hypocrites. The Greek word means to wear a mask. It was used of, of actors in a play were playing a part, and he was being a hypocrite by portraying something to them that wasn't true. He was act- and here's how, we tend to think of being a hypocrite, like, you know, you coming into church, acting like you're spiritual when you're really not, and that's one way, you're acting like you're godly when you're really not, that's one way of being a hypocrite, but he's also being a hypocrite, it's also being a hypocrite when you portray to people that don't believe that you're more like them than you really are. See, hypocrisy goes both ways. It's just wearing a mask. And so when we, to make unbelievers around us more comfortable, we begin to play down our faith, refuse to talk about our faith, begin to do things morally that we shouldn't do so that we don't look like too much of a, you know, Jesus crazy person. You know, we don't want to get too Jesus-y for them. Is that a word? That's a form of hypocrisy too. And that's kind of what happens here. And then it created division. Because it created division because it said, listen... Jews over here, Gentiles over here. We're all believers in Christ. We're still going to put these distinctions in. And it was creating a division where the gospel unifies God's people into one body called the church. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. And so it was dividing the body by race and by culture and rebuilding a wall that Jesus had torn down through the cross. And it was rooted, as we said, in nationalistic pride that a certain race or culture is better. And in doing so, what that's doing is adding to the gospel because it's Commentators, that's a form of legalism. Anytime you add something that you put some barrier between people and Jesus, it's a form of legalism. And here, the, the barrier is this racial, cultural, nationalistic barrier that they're putting up. And that's the big deal here. It's pointing to a Jesus plus theology. A Jesus plus gospel instead of a Jesus only gospel. This act made it look like Jesus and his sacrifice wasn't enough. It made it look like Gentiles also needed to become Jewish in order to be fully accepted by God because they weren't being fully accepted by Peter. Now, that wasn't what Peter really believed, but that's what it was selling to him. That's what it was promoting. And so it ended up betraying the truth of justification by faith alone because it made it look like works or keeping the law was needed to be justified before God. That Jesus and faith in him was simply not... Enough. And so there's our problem that we're presented with at this point in Galatians. And that applies to you and me because if we live out of we we do live out of gospel rhythm, we do get out of step with the gospel when we allow our conduct or our attitude to betray the truths of the gospel and the truth of the gospel. See, our conduct and our attitudes preach. They preach. They proclaim something. And if they don't proclaim, The same thing the gospel proclaims and the implications of that gospel, then there's a problem we're out of step, we're out of rhythm. And the gospel is the truth, right? It contains truth, absolute truth. It's the truth that we measure all that by. And so uh, I, I, I go crazy trying to hang like pictures. We've got one particular wall in our place where it's just like a collage of pictures, right? And so that's like the thing now, right? It's like this whole wall and it's just full of pictures. And it just drives me nuts because you can't keep it all straight, especially with three kids in the house and two that are running around and hitting walls and bouncing. And so anytime you look at it, at any moment it can be jumbled because, and it just just like pictures do, and it just drives me nuts because the OCD in me just wants it all to be straight. Right? Perfect. But I've noticed that when I go to hang a picture, I can think something looks straight. But if I take like a little level and I put that thing up there, now it'll tell me the truth over whether it's straight. Now, it might look straight to my eye, but it'll tell me sure, Just like you take a plumb line, it'll tell you whether the wall's really vertical or not. The gospel is the plumb line. It is the level. It tells us whether we're walking straight or not. If we're not walking in step, and rhythm with it, the gospel's not what's crooked or out of rhythm. We are. We are. So we have to always be measuring our life by that. So we have to beware of living by fear. Making decisions like other people are Lord instead of Jesus. deifying our trials and our circumstances, which is what we do when we treat them as ultimate and cower to them instead of bowing to Jesus. We have to beware of being hypocritical, not living in front of people that need Jesus like we know Jesus. We have to beware of promoting division or any form of us-ism. Us-ism is when any group gets together and says, this group's more special, more godly, more whatever. We can do that with race, you can do that with age, you can do that with socioeconomic groups, there's a a host of ways. You can do that with music, you can do that with style of church and style of preaching, there's a whole host of ways that you can do that. And when we treat others like they need more than Jesus to gain God's acceptance, you say, well, how would I do that? How would I treat others like they need to do more to gain God's acceptance? acceptance than than have Jesus when you refuse to give them yours that's what Peter's doing and that's what Paul equates it to see when when, when we treat others like there's something other than Jesus that is needed for us to walk in fellowship with them then we treat them like there's something more than Jesus that they need to be accepted by God you put yourself in the place of God and as judge over others so we have to always be asking ourselves, are we living out of rhythm, out of step, out of sync with the gospel? Our marriages can be out of rhythm and out of line with the gospel. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Wives, respect and honor and submit to your husbands. All these talk in the Bible about the marriage, you say, what's that all about? It's because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And our marriages are portrayed a truth of the gospel. But if our marriages don't do that, they're out of rhythm with the gospel. Sexual immorality is out of rhythm or out of line with the gospel. The gospel says you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. You've been purchased by Christ. And we do what we want to with our bodies and don't submit them to the lordship of Christ. We are out of rhythm, out of line with the truth of the gospel that says my body's not my own. Greed, living greedily instead of generously is out of rhythm with the gospel. Because the Bible tells us God so loved what he gave that Jesus became poor so that he might come and save us. And when we're... Bound up with greed and living that way instead of generously, we're acting like the gospel's not molding and shaping our lives. So, all these are ways that we can get out of rhythm, out of step, out of sync with the gospel. So, what does Paul do in this situation? It says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like, a, like Jews? He confronts it head on. He does it publicly because this is a public major issue. The issue is not one where Peter has personally offended him. The issue is one where he is leading an entire church astray. And so right there in front of everybody, as he sins in front of everybody, he says, no, 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 no. What in the world are you doing playing the hypocrite? Let me help you remove the mask. But he really is doing it with, with a lot more grace than maybe we read when we read this. As he's he begins to explain to Peter, we are justified through faith. Peter knew this. Peter knew this. And many believe that, as we're going to read here in just a moment, many believe that the rest of our passage this morning is actually the continuation of his speech to Peter. We don't really know where the speech to Peter ends and where the talk to the Galatians ends. It very well could be, but many believe at least the next two verses we're about to read are in fact a continuation of his confrontation with Peter. And so we're, our job is to constantly be confronting ourselves just as Paul confronted Peter and making sure we're in line with the gospel. Yes, we've got brothers and sisters we have to confront from time to time too, but we have to first be willing to confront ourselves. As Tim Keller says, Christian living is a continual realignment process, one of bringing everything in line with the truth of the gospel. It is. The rest of our lives as believers, we continually are looking at our life and saying what is out of line with the gospel? Because something just like your car, over time it gets out of alignment. So look at verse 15. Paul's going to begin to bring him back into alignment or give him some words that will help with that. Verse 15 of chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, through the law I died the law so that I might live to God. Sorry, read that last part the lot. So here's the deal. Paul begins to remind him of the truth of justification by faith alone. Something Peter absolutely knew. If you're a Christian this morning, you already know this. If you've been a Christian very long, you know it pretty well. It's, it's a core foundational truth. Because living in rhythm with the gospel starts with the foundation of justification. It starts there. And getting back in rhythm with the gospel starts with reminding yourself of the foundation of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. See, many believe that Paul's continuing his speech here to Peter. So what we see here is that this is kind of Paul's medicine for Peter as he confronts him. This, this, this is the pill that Peter needs to swallow. And it's one he's already swallowed. But he needs to go back and he needs to re-examine it. Notice what he says. he says. He uses the term Gentile sinners. Gentile sinners? Are we like them? Like these Gentile sinners? Well, that was a term Jews used for Gentiles that didn't live according to the law. Non-God fearing. They called them Gentile sinners. Paul may even be using some sarcasm here when he says this. But the point is that even Jewish believers who had believed in Christ all agreed that a person is not justified by the law. That just as a Gentile sinner is not justified... By living outside the law, living under the law won't justify you either. You need faith in Christ. Now, what does justify mean? What does it mean to be justified? What does the word justification mean? It simply means this, to be made right with God in the fullest sense of the term. Let me read to you a quote from John Stott. John Stott says this about justification. This is how he defines it. To condemn is to declare somebody guilty. To justify is to declare him not guilty, innocent, or righteous. Righteous. In the Bible, it refers to God's act of unmerited favor by which he puts a sinner right with himself. Not only pardoning pardoning or acquitting him, but accepting him and treating him as righteous. So it's not just God saying, you're forgiven. It's also God saying, you're accepted. It's not just the slates wiped clean. It's being credited fully with the righteousness of Christ. So in the gospel, God looks at us and he doesn't, doesn't just say, you're forgiven because Jesus paid your debt. He does that. But he also says, I'm taking the full righteousness of Christ, the perfect life he lived, and I'm crowning you with it. I'm placing it on you. So when I look at you, I see a lot more of Jesus than I see of you. I see Christ in his righteousness. You are justified. You are right with me just as my son is right with me. You can't get any more right than that. It means positionally, you are perfectly in sync and in line With God. So practically we're to live that out. Paul is reminding the Galatians and Peter that the only way anyone can be made right with God is through simple faith in Jesus and nothing else. See, when you start living like anything other than faith in Jesus is why God accepts you. It is spiritual poison to your soul. It breeds pride and it ultimately leads to spiritual burnout and failure. Because you've got to keep all the little new ball, juggling balls up in the air there. You've got to add this one and this one and, th- and all these things that you've got to do in order to, to please God. You've got to hope you don't drop them. It's exhausting. Condemning. And we need to be reminded that nothing we can do can save us or make us acceptable to God. We have to constantly remind ourselves of that. My behavior, my achievements, my performance cannot move God to love me more or to love me less. Because God's love for me is not contingent on my behavior. See, we need to be reminded of that constantly. It has to be driven into our hearts because it's the very foundation of the Christian life. You can't live with security and confidence in your choices without a good foundation. And knowing that I'm justified before God by Jesus and not my works gives me that security and confidence that I need to go all in with God to abandon my old life and to pursue obedience to Christ with the right motives. Not a motive of of trying to manipulate God to like me or love me. Not a motive to try to earn favor with God. But a pure motive of just, man, I'm just so grateful. I love Jesus. He's changed me. And I just want to honor Him and worship Him and, and please Him. It completely changes everything. When I was 10 my parents um, built you know, their, little, their dream house, right? All the way up until that age, I have all these memories of, of my mom pulling out all these books, Better Homes and Garden, and all these books for that, that had the building and taking them adapting them and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, are we ever going to build this thing, you know? We'd drive around and look at houses. One kind of like, and we, uh, how many weekends we spent in the car, I me mean, in the back of the car, just like, oh. And then when I was 10, they finally bought the land and they cleared it off. And I remember one day we look, went to look to see, they were building the house. I was gonna, We are going to go see it. And all I saw was just concrete everywhere, poured everywhere. Little wood framings and concrete. And I was like, what in the, where is the walls? Where is the roof? This doesn't look anything like a house. And she had to explain to me, well, they're laying the foundation. And as you know, your walls, your doors, your roof, your chimney, all those other components of the house aren't much good without a good foundation. And the same thing in the Christian life. The foundation is of supreme importance. And the foundation is Jesus and understanding that we're justified by grace through faith only in him alone. This is why some folks are so miserable trying to live the Christian life. It sounds impossible like a moralistic Olympics that they're not sure how to train for. Because they're just not sure what to do. It's because they're thinking their behavior, their obedience, their faithfulness can somehow gain the approval of God. But then they realize they don't measure up. And they give up and they get exhausted and burned out. Nothing is more freeing than knowing God accepts you because Jesus squared your account with him. And you can't unsquare it. That it's been made right with God through Jesus. In verses 17 and 18, Paul addresses an objection many have had. That's the portion I read twice to you. The accusation that Paul is addressing may have been something like this. By eating with sinners, you're making yourself a sinner. Or... And not viewing the law like we do, Paul, as saving, you just give license to sin. You can't control how people are going to behave. It's lawlessness. And Paul says, Oh, this is hogwash. Jesus is not a servant of sin. That's not what's going on here. I'm putting the law in its right place. In verse 18, Paul seems to be saying, If I go and rebuild my life on the law as my Savior, I just prove that I'm a sinner. Because I can't keep it. I can't measure up. I can't perfectly keep it. Only Jesus could do that. And in verse 19, he's saying, through the law, I learned that I can't keep it, that I'm a sinner. He would go on later in the book to call the law a tutor or a guardian meant to lead us to Christ. And one of the purposes of the law is to show us that we don't measure up to it, that we don't meet the standard of holiness. Paul says, I died to it. In other words, I would no longer view the law as a way to be justified before God. In fact, it was never supposed to be that way. As he would explain. True Jews faithful to God would never have viewed the law as the way to be right with God. They knew it was by faith. All all the way back to Abraham we see that played out. But by Paul's time it had been tainted and warped and people were starting to think the law is the way we're to be justified. I've died to the law. It's, It's not what I view as my Savior. I died to the law so I can live to God. When I trusted Christ as my righteousness, I became alive spiritually. And I have a new energy and a new life a new motive to live for God. It empowers me and energizes me to pursue the things of God. And then he gives a personalized testimony of how he lives the Christian life. In fact, it seems to me that Paul is saying, here is how I live in rhythm with the gospel. Here is how I live in step with the gospel. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. See all the personal pronouns? And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So we've got the foundation of justification, and now we've got the fuel of realization. Living in the awareness of, the constant awareness of, I'm crucified with Christ. Christ is in me. So now I live my life by faith in the Son of God. The reality is rooted in a new identity that comes with a new power that's lived out by faith. He says, first of all, he says, this identity of I with Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. He's speaking of a spiritual reality. He doesn't mean he literally died on the cross with Jesus. He means spiritually speaking, I'm a, by faith, I've identified with Christ in that way. That... Just as surely as Jesus died on the cross, the old me died on the cross. And my old way of trying to justify myself before God is all that's gone. Nailed to the cross. Old Paul's gone. Old self is dead. Just as surely as Jesus died for me, that part of me is old. It's gone. I'm no longer living that way. No longer trying to be justified that way. Though. He's saying the only way you can live daily for Jesus is to have died spiritually speaking with Christ. It's all about new identity. That my identity is so wrapped up with Christ that the cross has been transformational for me. And for us, that means that something that happened a couple thousand years ago daily transforms our life today because the old us has been crucified with Christ. This means as surely as Christ was crucified, believer, the old you is dead. and That's good news. If you're aware of it, if you're aware of it and you live in the realization of that, this means you have a whole host of used to's in your life. You got some of those? A whole host of used to's. that's part of the deal here. you The old you died with Christ. And then he says, but it gets better. But Christ who lives in me. I don't live that way. In fact, it's Christ who lives in me. He's saying I, I, this new spiritual power, he seems to be saying, that comes from Christ. He talks about it over in Colossians. In Colossians one twenty-seven. Paul writes, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Here's the mystery. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see this throughout the New Testament. The idea of Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you, being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Spirit of Christ. So how do you live the Christian life? You live it empowered by Christ. Jesus has done more than give you commands. He empowers the believer to obey those commands. And we have to constantly live in light of that reality. If you try to live the Christian life without Jesus, it will crush you. If you try to live it in your own power, you'll become a slave to legalism. It will be more than hard, it's impossible. Listen, how many Christians are daily trying to live the Christian life without full awareness of Christ in them? Oh, they know it as like this doctrinal thing, and maybe they, you know, they read it in a new believer book or what. But they don't live their life practically like they really believe that Christ has taken up residence in their life. They don't live fully aware of that realization. So we live by our word instead of His word. We live life on an island instead of in community with other believers. We live in submission to our flesh instead of to his spirit. These are all evidences that we're not living like we're fully aware that Christ is in us. When our life is void of the evidences of his power, it's a foolproof sign that we're ignoring the reality of his presence. So how do I live that out? He says, by faith. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. By faith in Jesus. That's how you live in light of your new identity in Christ. We come to Christ by faith. We continue in Christ by faith. The all of Christian life is from faith to faith. We never graduate from faith. We only mature in faith. And living in the realization of your identity in Christ and His presence of power in your life is about living by faith. Believing daily that the gospel is true and what it says and teaches is true. Believing daily that Christ is with you and will empower you and trusting Him to help you and trusting His Word to guide you. It's a a day-by-day process. Notice what he says. He says, Faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Isn't it interesting that he, he highlights that? He didn't have to say that. He could just say by faith in the Son of God. But he said, Who loved me and gave Himself for me. Paul's living by faith is immediately connected with the love of Christ and His sacrifice. In other words, it's not cold and mechanical. And by the way, the cross was not some cold and mechanical thing. The Christian life is meant to be lived in daily awareness of Jesus' love for you. It's personal. Notice Paul, he loved me. He gave himself for me. He's no longer saying us. Us is important, and most of the New Testament is written in terms of us. But sometimes you've got to get alone. You've got you to think about, God died for me. He loves me you got to personalize it. And that's what Paul's doing here. He wants us to personalize it. Christ loves you. He died for you. He gave himself for you. Not for some nameless group of people. For you. For you and with all your faults and failures and inconsistencies. For me with all my faults and failures and inconsistencies. When I was an enemy of God, Christ loved me and died for me. When you were an enemy of God, Christ loved you and died for you. Paul wants that to seek in. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And notice, it's not some wimpy just I love you and him imagining of Jesus whispering in his ear, I love you, Paul. No, no, it's immediately tied to what? Proof. Who loved me and gave himself for me. To an objective proof. The Bible tells us what? Don't just love in word only. Love in deed. In other words, don't just say, Oh, I love you, Brother show your love by what you do. Jesus has shown his love for us by laying his life down on the cross. So Paul says, I'm not just thinking about the fact that he loves me, I'm thinking about the fact that he loves me and that he laid down his life for me. It's a love that is written in blood. Amazing love, how can it be? That thou, my king, would die for me. Living in gospel rhythm, Living in step with the gospel requires that we be assured of God's love for us in Jesus. Assured of Jesus' love for us. Listen, if I'm not assured of God's love for me, then I'm always going to be trying to gain the assurance of that through my behavior, through what I do, through works righteousness, or I'm going to try to replace that void with the things of this world. I'm either going to try to gain it through legalistic means or replace it they're usually immoral or godless means, we might say. In other words, I'll even become a self-righteous church brat or a heathen, but I won't be godly. I'll either be a hypocrite and self-righteous, and I might stand a little straighter in church. I might dress a little better. I might, walk a, I might, I might say better prayers, and I might look a little more righteous on the outside, but I'll be far from God. Or, man, I'll just go all out with the world. Because we need the assurance that we're loved by the one who created us. And Paul says, I know that because Christ loves me, the Son of God loves me and gave himself for me. And he lived in that realization. That's the key. Day by day faith. Day by day awareness of that realization makes all the difference. It's one thing when you think about it at church on a Sunday morning. It's one thing when you wake up with that in your mind and in your heart and you live your day in that reality. Listen, if you left here this morning and you found out that somebody had left you $1 billion in your bank account, would you live differently the rest of the week? Like, I'm on tip more, right? I'm going to eat a little better this week. You've got a list, right? And I'm sure the first things are, you know, Tithing and things, I'm sure, I'm sure. But those are the first things. But we all got this list of stuff that would be different about our life. Would your life be any different if you weren't aware of the fact? No. We'd still be lots. We'd live the same way. We would we'd live the same way. Or if we just ignored it or didn't account for it. Awareness makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. And many of us, the reason we're in a spiritual rut or we walk in spiritual failure and we're out of rhythm and out of line with the gospel, with our conduct, with our attitudes, with our ideas and things like that, is we're not living in daily awareness of what Jesus did for us and his love for us, which has been displayed in the cross and walking in the power he provides. We're not living by faith in the Son of God. Oh, we put our faith in him and we believe the gospel, but we're not daily living in that reality. And it manifests itself when we ignore His Word, when we don't lean on Him in prayer, when we don't surround ourselves with Christian community, those are all things that begin to show itself, that we're not walking by faith. Paul ends with this. I do not nullify the grace of God. One commentator pointed out how there may have been an accusation that was come against Paul saying that he was moving away from the grace of God as revealed in the Old Testament by interpreting the law the way He was. Paul's saying... He would laugh at that. He was, I'm reveling in the grace of God, is what Paul would say. I don't nullify the grace of God, because if I could be justified, if I could be made right with God by the law or by human effort, and when you see that, works of the law, by law, it, yes, it means Old Testament rituals and sacrifices, <laughs> but it also means this any form of human effort whatsoever. If, if that could make me right with God, then Christ died for no purpose. If I could just keep the rules, right, and that would get me into heaven, then Jesus' death on the cross was meaningless, Paul says. Those are strong words. The bottom line is that we're to live every day, every moment like Christ's death had purpose. Because it did. It rescued us from our sin and from what we deserve. It displays God's love for us as we talked about. Our eternity, our changed lives, our spiritual victory, all that stuff is rooted in the cross. We're to live every day in light of that. It had purpose, and that gives us purpose. New purpose. Let me ask you this morning. Are you out of rhythm with the gospel? Out of line, out of step. You aren't the only one. All believers at some point or another will get out of sync. Even Peter. Apostle Peter. Peter. And at times our thoughts and our ideas and our attitudes and our conduct is simply not in line with the gospel truth. So what do I do? Repent and believe the gospel. Recalibrate your life according to the gospel. You say, well, I did that a long time ago. I'm not saying get saved again. I'm saying get back in line with the gospel. And the only way to do that is to repent of your sin and once again say, I believe the gospel and I'm going to live in light of its implications. Jesus, help me. You're in me. Help me. Empower me. Recall the foundation of justification in your life that you are made right with God, not by your behavior or anything you can do or can add to, but only by Jesus and Him alone, and reload on the fuel of the realization of daily living in light of His presence and power in your life and your identity in Him by faith. Preach to yourself. This is the only time you're getting preached to during the week. You're missing six other good opportunities. Do it every day. Preach to yourself the gospel. You have died with Christ, believer. Believer, Christ now lives in you. Live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. Let me ask you, has your life ever been brought in line with the gospel? For some of us here this morning, that's the reason that Christianity might just seem so weird and void and hollow and just hard. It's because our lives have just never been brought in line with that truth. God's love for you in Christ Jesus has never captivated your heart and mind and you've never for the first time genuinely repented, turn, that means turned from your sin and embraced what Christ has done for you and his death on the cross on your behalf, paying the debt that you deserve to pay and his resurrection from the dead. It's when we believe on Christ and put our faith and trust in him that we are freed to live the Christian life with joy and absolute freedom. Have you done that? If not, I hope you'll do it today. Let's pray.